Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Charles W. Chuck Bryan is looking deeply into the eyes of uh, Nikola Tesla right now for some reason. I never noticed that he literally is staring at me the whole time. You know, I once wrote an article uh, for HowStuffWorks.com about why the eyes in some paintings follow you. Oh, really? Yeah. Dude, why didn't you tell me about that? Uh, I don't know. We've never podcasted on it because it would literally be like a five-minute podcast. Well, maybe we can bring it up to your podcast. (laughs) Maybe. It's worth uh, reading, though. I think uh, if you typed in uh, eyes and painting or something like that in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, it would bring it up. I figured it was because the eyes were cut out and there was a psychopathic killer behind the painting. <laughs> That's so the second page. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Also, while we're just doing plugginess, right, mm-hmm. why don't you follow us on Twitter? It's a It's a party over there, right? Our handle, sometimes not what you'd think right off the top of your head, but it makes sense when you hear it. S-Y-S-K podcast, right? Yeah. And there's no, like, we're not like um, uh, Justin Bieber or Lady Gaga. We don't say stupid stuff about being backstage. We're actually a cool news aggregator, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, and then also we're on Facebook. We have a Stuff You Should Know Facebook page, Chuck. And, yeah. Chuck, you kill it on that, interacting with people, coming out, shaking hands in your robe and, uh, you know, <laughs> right. with a little shrimp in your mouth from being in the green room. You know, hey, how's it going? Good to meet you. Thanks for coming out. I can't imagine anything more disgusting than me coming at someone with a robe and shrimp in my mouth. <laughs> well, it happens every day on Facebook, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess now, are you ready for the intro? Yes. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Chuck, I want I want you to go back with me to uh, 1990. All right, freshman in college, baby. I'm a freshman in high school. That's about right. And um, I am in my room in uh, Kennesaw, Georgia. Okay. In my parents' house, and it's nighttime, and I'm reading. I don't remember what I'm reading, but I'm like sitting on my bed reading. I'm actually laying with my elbows up on my bed reading, mm-hmm. right? Um. And I look over and notice that my closet door is cracked slightly. <laughs> this is abnormal. Usually my closet door is shut tightly. Still? Uh, yeah, even still. Yeah. Even still to this day, I don't see any reason to leave it open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny how those little things stick around. So I remember making this little comment to myself like, huh, you know, that's, that's weird. There's probably somebody in there, right? <laughs> but I go back to reading. And uh, I, I get this this annoying sensation that's like getting my attention out of the corner of my eye and I look over and now the door's cracked by about three times more than it was before. Well, I have tremendous amounts of sense so I throw my book down and start running toward the door of my room mm-hmm. right as I get to my uh, to the handle my hands on the doorknob I start to turn it the closet door is thrown open and my dad comes out going Rawr! are you right? kidding me I'm not kidding this is a true story I went <clears throat> From a standing position with my hand on the doorknob to completely flat on my back in like maybe a half of a motion. (laughs) It wasn't even one full motion, right? Uh I was on my back screaming, staring at my dad, screaming in terror, looking at him like you were looking at Nikola Tesla. Mm -hmm. I see that it's my dad, but I'm so afraid that I can't stop screaming. My mom has time to make it up the stairs into my room and start yelling at my dad, asking, what did you do to Josh? And I'm sitting there looking at them, having this argument, still screaming, going back and forth. Wow. 
Your dad's a character, man. He is a character. <laughs> the herbal Elvis. He looked so sad and so remorseful when like, he, he realized saw he my reaction. Up. But I, I don't think I was wrong in, in, in noticing a little glimmer of disappointment in his eye. Like, what happened to you, kid? When did oh, you get right. to be such a, a panty waste? <laughs> so there is my fear story, Chuck. That's man. my great fear story. We used to antagonize uh, Eddie. You know my friend Eddie. Yeah. In college, he was I was roommates with Eddie for years, and we used to scare him all the time. So awful, like coming home from the movie. Uh, what was the the one with the author, the James Con? Oh, Misery. Uh, misery. Came yeah. home from Misery, and like that was a rough one. My roommate Booten literally unscrewed light bulbs all over the apartment, and like hid in closets. <laughs> oh man, you got and Eddie was smart enough to turn on the television for light. Though. We didn't count on that. Yeah. Next time we unplugged the TV. Yeah, it's tough to get one past that. Yeah, it was always fun. And he got a kick out of it, too, you could tell. Yeah. Which we'll get to later. So, yeah, we're going to get to a lot in this one, right? This is how fear works. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a good one, I think. I think it already is. Well, okay. Thanks to your story. So, Chuck, I think we should start out by basically defining fear. <clears throat> Webster's Dictionary <laughs> defines fear as such. Remember in high school when that was just the way to start your paper? <laughs> yeah. You thought you were so smart? Yeah. Uh, it defines it. Oh, it doesn't. But we define it as uh, a chain reaction in the brain. Starts with a stimuli. can be many different things. Oh, yeah. And it ends up with the fight or flight response in the end. Exactly. Which um, we know that you know about the fight or flight response, having listened to this podcast faithfully mm-hmm. since 2008. Yes. Right? Um, so we're not going to go into too much detail about the fight or flight response because you already know this. Yes. But suffice to say that fear is an a, autonomic response. Yes, it technically. is. Which so the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. We've never mentioned this before. It's really nervous. It is the nervous system that responds to stress, uh-huh. and it's made up of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. Yeah, I don't think we have talked about that, have we? No, but it's like the umbrella nervous system that's like, whoa, okay, and then calm down, right? Right, and autonomic, I mean, it almost means automatic in this case. Right. Because it's just triggered. We don't plan it. Right. That fear, po- fear just happens. That Pointer Sisters song could have been called autonomic. It's so interchangeable, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, well, there's not a lot we can do, and we don't necessarily know what's going on. Like, um Analysis of the situation isn't necessarily a part of being afraid. It's more like get out of there, right? Yeah, but, but it can we'll be, find. Too. Yeah, yeah, we'll find that there's other ways that that can happen, right? Coming soon, as in a few minutes. Yeah. So let's let's just uh, go over what uh, parts of the brain are responsible for fear, right? Yeah, and this will come up in in a, in a minute here when we describe how the paths <laughs> go. There's a lot of foreshadowing. I know. So <laughs> if we just ended it. Uh, but the thalamus um, uh, picks up on things that you hear and see and smell um, and in the way of sensory data. Uh, sensory cortex interprets this. you got the hippocampus. It stores. The seahorse. Yes, that's right. It stores and receives uh, conscious memories and starts to establish like a context for what's going on. Right. In the, this case, fear. Yeah. Uh, amygdala plays a big part. It decodes the emotions and determines the threat and stores Old fear memories? Fear memories. Like if, if something really bad happens to you and right. you have to create like a real fear memory, right. the amygdala is where that sits. Okay. And then finally, the hypothalamus is where it always ends up, no matter which path it takes. And yeah. We'll talk about those paths. The hypothalamus is the on-off switch for the fight-or-flight response. 
it makes it's go time. And the only part of your brain that can tell the hypothalamus whether it's go time or whether go time is passed is the amygdala. Amygdala. Right? It's the gatekeeper to the autonomic nervous system. I'm still just as thrilled about the brain as I was when we first started studying this stuff. I know. I think I'm more thrilled. It amazes me. Yeah. So, Chuck. Josh. There is a guy named uh, Joseph Ledoux. Have you heard of him? No. He is a neuroscientist at NYU, and he came up with uh, two categories for our fear response. He's the dude? Yeah. Oh, okay. And they happen simultaneously. But there is what he's dubbed a low road and a high road. Yeah. And like I said, both of them happen at the same time. Um, but the low road is basically like the quick, nasty, dirty response to fear, right? Like, holy crap. Right. So um, let's say there, there's a pretty good example in this article by Julia Layton. Oh, this is Julia? Yeah. Actually, both of the ones we're recording today are Julia really? Layton's. Yeah. Is, Way to go, Layton. She's good. Um so uh, let's say that you're sitting at home, right, in your underwear with a beer perched on your stomach, and right. you're just watching some wrestling. Have you been watching me? <laughs> <laughs> I have webcam set up in your house. You do a lot of stuff because I encourage you to without you knowing. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so you're sitting at home as such, mm-hmm. and um, all of a sudden your door just starts rattling, right? Yeah. Okay. There's something that's going to happen called the low road fear response, and that is the sound and the sight of your door rattling yeah. is the sensory data that suddenly goes into uh, what the thalamus, which sorts it and says, uh, hey, um, amygdala, yeah, I need your help. Yeah, it's like forwarding the email. Yeah, like there is a potential threat here. Yeah. And we need to respond. Sure. And the amygdala says, you know what? You are 100% right, Thalamus. I'm going to contact the uh, hippocampus. Oh, okay. No, the hypothalamus. Right. Right? And and uh, basically get the fear fight or flight response going. Yeah, just like, just in case, let's go ahead and turn it on. Right. So you are now, your beer is spilled all over the floor because yes. you leapt up out of your, um, your easy chair. Uh-huh. Okay? At the same time this is going on, um, the high road response is taking place. Thankfully. Yes. So the high road response is, uh, it takes longer, but it gives you a much more thoughtful analysis of what's going on. Yeah, there's a couple of extra stops along the way uh, that lead to reason and uh, context and that kind of yeah. thing. So uh, this time it goes to the sensory cortex first. And the sensory cortex says, you know what? This has happened before. Or, no, it's it says, like, there's more than one interpretation oh, of that's what's true. going on. Has it happened before? Right. And the hippocampus says, you know. Answers yeah, that. remember that time uh, in that big windstorm, the, the tree fell outside right. and you thought uh, the boogeyman was coming to get you. So remember that? Right, like the hippocampus goes and gets your memories to, to analyze them for context compared to this. Yes. The sensory cortex is saying, like, what else is going on here, right? Yeah, is there I a mean, windstorm? Like, exactly. Is there patio furniture moving? Are there sure. trees scraping on the window? And all of a sudden, you're like, "Oh, okay, it is wind, right?" That's right. But let's say that your um, your 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 brain, your sensory cortex said, um, "No, what I hear is a guy shouting like, i 'I'm coming in,' <laughs> right?" Yeah. And your hippocampus is like, well, last time that happened, a guy came in in a ski mask, and I was hogtied for three days before anybody right. found me. Right? It, it was not the wind. So that leap up out of the easy chair is your low road response. Yeah. 
the, and standing there while your brain's interpreting the, the rest of the data and then coming to the conclusion that, yeah, there is somebody coming through the door and then running out your back door, that's the result of the high road response. Yeah, or if you determine uh, or inside the brain that, hey, this is just a windstorm, then it sends the message to the amygdala saying, hey, go tell the uh, hypothalamus, just shut down the, uh, right. the whole system. Not the whole system, because you'd be dead. <laughs> but shut down the fight or flight response. It's just trees. Yep. It's and just Emily trees. is on the ceiling still at this point because her high road is probably longer than mine. Yeah. And the low road very very quick. Yeah. Yes. Well, we heard smart. gunshots one time in L.A. and Emily literally was like on the floor. I turned around. I was like, "Did you hear that?" And she was on the ground, <laughs> like <laughs> in prone position. That's awesome. Like wow. But I, you know. I grew up rough and tumble, so I heard gunshots a lot more than she did. Did you have a hard scrapple youth? I did. <laughs> I didn't know that. Not like the uh, the streets of Akron where Emily grew up. Oh, okay. The tender streets of Akron, Ohio. Yeah, they are very tender. All right, Josh. So you pointed out, which is very important, that both of these things are happening at the same time, and that is why even if uh, you realize very quickly that there is no uh, imminent danger, you're still going to be coming down from that fight or flight response for a little bit because right. your low road has also already been triggered. Right. And it all ends a hypothal- in the hypothalamus either way. Yes. Are we done? I, I guess so. That was really rapid, man. No, we're not done. Because uh. we got to talk about emotions, right? And why we get scared. Well, yeah. There's very little um, argument about what emotions are for. And basically, they are motivators, Right. They are survival-based motivators specifically. Um, the basic ones is, uh, let's see, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, joy, and sadness. Those are the six basic emotions that an anthropologist named uh, Paul Ekman identified in the 1970s, right? Yeah, you see that? Six. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, we're talking about fear right now, but uh, you could make the... This is the this is the case for all of at least those basic, if not all, the emotions that a human can experience. Right, is that they're motivators. They're saying there's something in going on with you specifically right now mm-hmm. in your environment mm-hmm. or in your life in a kind of a meta sense. Right, or both. Right, yeah. Um, with fear, it's normally something's in your environment. Yeah, and it's a, clearly a motivator to survive. Right. So um, let's say that. Um, you're you're a caveman. Okay, so I'm back on the couch with my beer <laughs> right, watching exactly. wrestling. Exactly, and um, you're sitting there. Uh, you see a snake. Okay. You just don't don't have a very good feeling about it, so you don't go up and touch it. Right. But your friend Erg sitting next to you, <laughs> yeah. is like, "Well, what is this?" And Erg gets bit and dies a horrible, nasty death yeah. right in front of your eyes. What happened to Tuk Tuk? Well, no, okay. you're Tuk Tuk. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, you, Tuk Tuk, uh-huh. have just formed uh, possibly the first fear memory uh, in response to snakes. Yeah. You, are, it, it, doing a very crude interpretation of natural selection and evolution, yeah. you are going to be able to go mate, uh-huh. and mayhaps that fear memory will somehow epigenetically be passed on to your offspring. Yeah, and then it's a trait. Eventually, yes. So. Yeah. Um, fear is a survival-based motivator, right? Yeah, and caveman is an apt description because if you feared the right things back in the day, like snakes and tigers and lightning, then uh, you had a good chance of surviving and procreating, and all of a sudden you had a stronger, uh, smarter 
wiser population. Exactly. But although this was going on, you know, long, long, long ago, mm-hmm. and a lot of people argue long before we were humans, but, you know, um, back when we were still prey to snakes, like right. primates, that still stuck around, and that's probably where they first started. But um, we didn't have any idea that this was evolution at work, and it wasn't until, like, the late 19th century that Darwin really kind of got the attention of the world and said, hey, these are inherent traits that are passed down. Like Fear is not something that's necessarily learned. It's something we have instinctively. And he conducted this pretty cool little experiment yeah. that he wrote about in um, his book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, which was published in 1872. Yeah. And he went to the zoo, right? Well, yeah. He was um, specifically, there. the debate at the time was about the face of fear, the Edward Monk-like holy crap face that everyone gets when they're scared. You, you took it as being scared? I thought that was a scream of joy. The face of fear? Yeah. Edvard Monk? <laughs> oh, oh. Really? I thought he was like, I just got the best deal on this muffler. It looked more to me like Home Alone. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no, that was Joy, though, at the time. He was glad his parents were gone, right? No, no. He was. He couldn't believe it. That was, I think, surprise. Okay, right. And just, then later Joy, and then later Sadness. Yeah. When he learned... Well, we all know eventually yeah. that family is important to yeah. our happiness. And don't fear the creepy old man in your neighborhood. Actually, you probably should. You probably should. Man. I think Chris Columbus did a great disservice to children <laughs> by did. by making that such a moral. All right. So, yeah, I always interpreted monks because it was called the scream as as terror. Yeah. I Regardless, <laughs> that face we all make when we're scared, you know, out of our pants. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went and Darwin went and stood in front of a... Uh, a uh, clear uh, plexi, I guess it was probably glass at the time. I would think it was glass. <laughs> plexi. And had a puff at her uh, jump, you know, leap toward his face. Even though he knew he was protected, he still reacted with that fear face and jumped back. And he said basically that uh, my will and reason were powerless against the imagination of danger, even though he's never experienced it. Right. So, like, I've never been bitten by a snake. but Or actually, they said that people that have never even... Been, been in a, a room. Yeah, been in a room with a snake or scared of snakes. Yeah, so it, he came to this conclusion that that fear and, you know, likely all of our basic emotions are uh, very much passed down through the generations, right? Yeah. And uh, he came to that conclusion because he couldn't control himself mm-hmm. when the snake, which he'd never been bitten by, mm-hmm. um, lunged at the glass, which was safely in between yeah. them. He still couldn't control it. So he concluded, yeah, there's... There's a lot more going on to this than, you know, just something I've learned because I, why would I be afraid of a snake? Right. And I know rationally that there's glass there so that this stuff is so ancient. Our modern trappings of civilization, e.g. a glass in a zoo, mm-hmm. can't subdue it. Yeah, yeah. The same at baseball games when they foul the ball back and they know, you know there's a screen right in front of you and you will never get hit by a baseball. But people still jump back. And that may be more... That may be less fear and more uh, just an autonomic reaction to something coming at you. That was Darwin's point. Really? Yeah. That it's the same thing? Yeah, because if we didn't experience fear, like a baseball coming at yeah, us would true. be like, hmm, and then boom. Yeah. <laughs> same same with anything that we, we yeah. move to get away from. Yeah. You always feel like a goober, too, at the game when that happens. Well, that's a, that's a uh, higher... Um, Emotion that supposedly are uh, specific to humans and a couple of other higher primates, which is embarrassment. Yeah. That only exists in relation to other people. Right, right. 
I don't think I've ever said the word goober in like a decade. That's a good one. Just flew out of my mouth. I love goobers. I've said, can I have another goober? But yeah, what, was that the peanut and chocolate? Oh, so good. Yeah. Um, so, Chuck, Darwin basically said, I'm right. You're wrong, you idiots. <laughs> um, and uh, fear is now seen as a uh, as a basic emotional response that's an inherited one. Yeah, and it's the same as it was in the caveman days, except it's not lions and tigers now. It's people breaking into your house, home invasion, yeah. terrorist attack. Well put. Thank you. Um, and then there's another point that Darwin made. I don't know if he hammered at home, but um, we can anticipate things, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't have to see a snake bite erg to be afraid right. of a specific snake, right? Or have it experienced and yourself the, even. Right. Or, um, and it doesn't go away with each snake. Like, each new snake doesn't necessarily not represent a new threat. Right. Snakes in general do, right? Yes. Um, and that's because we can anticipate things, right? Mm-hmm. That's another survival mode that... Um, that fear triggers, or that I guess is centered around fear. We can anticipate being afraid, and apparently studies have shown that we can become physiologically and psychologically just as afraid when we anticipate being afraid of something right. than when we're actually confronted with that thing we're afraid of. Yeah, yeah. Well, which is like a fear of flying would be a perfect example of that. Yes, it would. You can be just as scared, probably, as if you have actually been in a plane crash if you have a really, really intense phobia of flying. Dude, I can tell you that even if you've never been on a, <laughs> even a remotely scary flight, uh-huh. you can very much be afraid anticipatorily of a plane crash. Yes. It's very scary. You've gotten pretty good, though, right? Dude, I am great. I slept through the last takeoff I was on. Really? I could not believe it. Look Yumi at you. was like, who are you? Did you check in your pulse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And well, nothing. Well, I was on no scotch, no pills, no nothing. You weren't on scotch? No scotch. <laughs> well, that's called fear extinction, and we'll get to that, too. More foreshadowing. Another precursor. That was uh, very anticipatory. So, uh, speaking of conditioning, which we were not, let's talk about a very cruel experiment in the 1920s by Mr. John Watson. Yep. Little Albert. Uh, little Albert was an 11-month-old baby. I think they call Albert a toddler. He was 11 or an inf- They call him an infant, and that's a baby. Yeah, starting to toddle. Just starting to toddle. So uh, little Albert, they wanted to teach Albert fear of white rats. The problem was, I guess it wasn't a problem, it was probably pretty good for the sake of the experiment, was that he loved white rats. And when the white rats would come around, little Albert would even reach for them and I uh, guess try to pet them mm-hmm. And until they started playing this loud, booming noise. No, you know what they did. They took a claw hammer and a piece of metal and banged it. Right behind his head every time he went to go touch <laughs> That was the a loud, booming noise. Yeah. So uh, it didn't take long before Albert was uh, crying and moving away from the white rats, as expected. And not just white rats, Chuck. Rabbits. Really? Fur coats. Cotton balls. They showed that fear isn't just a- an instinct that we right. inherit. It can be conditioned. And little Albert became Siegfried Fischbacher. Here's the worst part. You ready for it? <laughs> That's not true. You ready? Yeah. Well, no one knows who Little Albert is. Well, he wasn't Sigrid Fischbacher. Well, you, you don't, don't know. know. So John Watson um, was planning on reversing this fear conditioning. Yeah, sure. But was caught having an affair with an assistant and was fired before he could. So, so Little he, Albert just grew up scared. Exactly. <laughs> and um, Watson went on to um, get into the advertising game 
and uh, was successful and actually married, I think, the lady he was having an affair with, um, but burned all of his notes, in I think, before he died in 1958. So no one to this day has any idea who really? Little Albert is. What? When was this, the 1920s? So Little Albert would be old or dead. He'd be like 90. Yeah, probably dead. Probably yeah. died of fright at a young age. Isn't that horrible? That is pretty horrible. But... Out of this horrible old-timey experiment, which, if you're interested, I wrote, like, uh, top five horrific psychological experiments for the blogs. Yeah. This is one of them. I agree. Um, the, the What came out of it was an understanding that fear is conditioned, right? Yes. And if you can condition somebody, if you can teach somebody to fear, you can teach people to unfear. Yeah. Right? But before we get to that, Chuck. <laughs> More precursors. I think we should um I think we should talk about some of the most common fears. Yeah, I didn't realize that phobias there are only three main types and I guess it's sort of a loose a lot of them fall under these umbrellas so that must be the deal cuz agoraphobia fear of places where escape might not be be easy or help may not be available. Oh, that's like a fear of big open places. Yeah, but I think in a broader sense it's just fear of of I may not be able to get help. Yeah. In case I need it. You know, one of the characteristics of agoraphobia in some cases is like being afraid you're like if you're out on the beach, being afraid you won't have anything to grab onto and just flying off the earth. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like you can't go into big open spaces. It's like the opposite of claustrophobia. Joan Cusack on that show, that awesome Showtime show has agoraphobia. She can't leave the house. Mm -hmm. And it's like really kind of heartbreaking, maybe because it's Joan Cusack, (laughs) you know, and you have like. You want good things for her? Well, you want good things for the whole Cusack family. Yeah, that's true. Uh, social phobias obviously have anything to do with people. And then specific phobias is the third category, which is a bit of a cop-out, because that's like everything else that you're afraid of. Including, you ready? Phobophobia. Fear of phobias. Fear of fear. Fear of fear. Yeah. That's everybody. No, this is like a debilitating oh, phobia. That you don't like. That you're afraid of becoming afraid at some point. So what, do you just set your life up very safely? Like, don't watch horror movies, don't... Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) should we read this Gallup poll? Yeah, and I couldn't find a more recent one. No, this is probably fairly accurate still, though. 2005, and sort of sad, uh, they polled teenagers in the United States, and their top ten things they were afraid of, terrorist attacks was number one. I wonder if that's still the case. I'll bet it's not. Maybe. Spiders... Death, failure, war, heights, crime, being alone, the future, and nuclear war. <laughs> the future. And I made my own top five as a teenager, as a Baptist teenager. Like back then you did? No, I did it today. Oh, okay, gotcha. But what this is got? what little Chuck was afraid of, and this isn't a joke. In order, sex, Satan, alcohol and drugs, <laughs> sex, and Satan was my top five. <laughs> so weird. Wow. And, and honestly, I even took notes and scribbled things out, and that was about as accurate as I could get it. Huh. And you uh, overcame the first one with the second one <laughs> with the aid of the third one. <laughs> but they popped back in at four and five. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you sobered up. Um, so, common fears, Josh? Dentistry? Yeah. What'd you say? Dentistry being, uh, or not. I thought that's what you said. Not becoming a dentist, but going to the dentist. Right. Flying, uh, speaking in public. Heights is a huge one. Yeah, we've gotten better at the speaking in public thing, but we still get very. Oh, nervous. I still get terrified. Yeah, but I we've don't overcome. think I'll ever be okay with that. No, not like super like Tony Robbins, free and easy, because I imagine he's a cool customer before yeah. he goes on stage. Sure. 
He's not throwing up. Although, you know, he might take beta blockers. Those are for stage fright now. Is that right? Yeah, it's one of the, you know, how every drug on the planet says, well, we've also discovered it helps with this. So beta blockers, evidently a lot of musicians use it. Well, we should start doing beta blockers. Yeah. Okay. Chuck, we were just talking about universal fears or what, what a lot of people think are universal fears. And there's some behind, um, there's some ideas behind universal fears like snakes, spiders, sure. things like that, that they are incredibly ancient, that are our fear of them is probably pre-human back when we were chimps mm-hmm. who were getting eaten by snakes. Right. Right? Or who interacted with spiders sure. on a regular basis, and that's why we can fear them without ever having had a bad experience with one. Right? Yeah, or humans in the case of rats, uh, because rats carry disease that killed large populations of people. Yeah. They think that's why we're scared of rats today. That one is a little hinky to me because we've only been aware of germ theory since like the 19th century. And I don't really buy that You don't one. think it's long enough? No, I think maybe rats, like we've watched scuttle. too many rats like chew the eyeballs out of like a sleeping friend. <laughs> that's why I think we're afraid of rats, not disease. I've never seen that happen in a movie. Um, Really? Chewed the eyeballs out of a sleeping friend? No, I'm saying like in real life, and like you oh, know, you've seen that in real life. No, I'm saying years and years ago. <laughs> okay. Do you understand really? No, I think I get it now. I, I think like way back in the day, back when we were living in caves or terrible shelters, Tuck Tuck would see the rat chew the eyeballs out of well, uh, out of Erg while he was sleeping, and Tuck Tuck was like, "Ooh, I need to steer clear of those rats." <laughs> Okay, but there are some that are not necessarily universal that are actually culturally bound, right? Or at least regionally bound. Like um, a, a good example in this article is if you live on the coast, you're probably going to have a greater fear of hurricanes than yeah. somebody who lives in the Midwest who's probably going to have a greater fear of tornadoes, Coop. especially lately, for goodness sake. Yes. God, what is going on? Tornadoes, man. Um, and then there's some that are like, you literally have to live in this particular society to experience this fear. Kind of. Not necessarily, because I sometimes experience this fear. Um, there's one in, in Japan called Taijin Kyofusho. Nice. Kyofusho. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is basically a cult- culturally bound Japanese fear of inadvertently um, irritating. Offending. Or offending somebody mm-hmm. by being overly respectful or polite. Yeah. So not only are you afraid of, you know, offending somebody by being, being disrespectful yeah, exactly. or not polite enough, there's a threshold where you could be overly polite and, and offend someone and, and there's there's a fear of reaching that point. Right. Or if you're the president, you might now have a fear of giving a toast in England incorrectly. I have a fear of seeing that again. <laughs> that was mortifying. It was it was so uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> If you don't know, the, the President Obama recently went to England for a state visit and apparently had a gaffe or two in his toast in front of a lot of people. Yeah. Like he raised his glass first and the queen is supposed to do that first. And she kept, he had his glass and did you see she just kept looking down at yeah. his glass? And well, he was giving a glass. toast during the national anthem. To her. Right. Not realizing that everybody was being quiet, not because they were listening to his toast, but because they were respectfully being quiet during the national anthem, which he was trying to talk over. The, the aftermath which, was so awful because he looked around and he realized that no one else has glasses raised, and he just quietly put his glass down. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> that was so uh, He also signed uh, the Queen's guest book and dated it like <laughs> May 11th, 2008. Yeah. So apparently that. Obama's living in 2008 I still. think he was nervous. As all get out. He was great there. in Ireland. 
He drank a pint of Guinness with everybody. Well, that's because that's the only rule Ireland has. <laughs> you go to England and they probably give him a dossier of like, don't do this, do do oh, that. Yeah, I'm and sure. He's probably shaking in his boots. Well put, Chuck. That's why we don't go on state visits to England much. So, Chuck. Yes. Um, we have talked about fear, right? Yes. Um, and we also talked about, well, we foreshadowed, I think, fear extinction, right? Um, John Watson was planning on basically making little Albert's fears go away through a process called fear extinction, which is a type of conditioning. Yeah, but it's should, like the reversal of it. Yeah, we should point out the reason this is important is because fear is okay in doses because it is a survival tool, but it's not good to live in constant fear. It's not good for your body because it just wreaks havoc on your internal systems because of fight or flight is so mm-hmm. intense. Exactly. It lowers your immune system, you know, it raises the heart, blood pressure, all that stuff. I think we talked about that in Can You Scare Someone to Death? Yes. Yeah. Um, so fear extinction, uh, well, any kind of fear conditioning is, say, hitting a claw hammer on a um, mm. on a piece of metal behind a baby's head whenever it, he touches a little white rat, right? Yeah. The opposite of that is having the baby touch the little white rat and not making that horrible sound. You can also say um, condition rats to fear a sound, like just the tone, like a ding, by giving them an electric shock in their cage every time that ding sounds. They're going to come to fear yeah. that sound. If you make that ding without delivering the shock, eventually this fear memory, or this conditioned fear is going to be unlearned. Yes. And uh, one thing that they learned out of that that was pretty interesting is that they theorize that the extinction memories form in the amygdala, but instead of staying there, they're transferred to the medial prefrontal cortex to be stored. So uh, it's still triggered in the amygdala, but that's where the, the new learned non-fear resides. Right. They think. That's what they think now. Because it's the brain. It's all a bunch of theory. The deal with extinction, too, is exposure. So uh, one of the things that they'll do is... Um, let's say if you're afraid of heights, they'll inch you closer and closer to the edge of the building until you realize, like, all right, nothing's happening here. It's cool. I'm not falling off. And then eventually, if you're exposed to this enough, supposedly you can reverse some of these fears. Right. Um, it's, that's general, like, behavioral psychology, yeah. just little by little, because you're making smaller – you're making memories every time. Yeah. Oh, I didn't get bitten this time. That's weird. So maybe I'll go a little further. I didn't get bitten again. And then ultimately you're like, I'm probably not going to get bitten, so I don't need to be afraid. And that's when you get bitten. <laughs> <laughs> then you're, you're done. Have you ever – did you used to watch the Bob Newhart show? Oh, yeah. There Wait, which a, one? The old, old one? Old, the, old one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, not the old one. The, the old, old one. The one from the 70s. Yeah, sure. Um, there was one – Susan Plachette. Yes. Mm. There's a great one called um, Flying the Unfriendly Skies, where he took like a, a, a group, one of his groups that was afraid of flying right. onto a, a plane, and it's hilarious. I was watching it today, and really? Penny Marshall's the stewardess, a young, really? young, just starting out Penny Marshall. Bob Newhart equals national treasure. Agreed. I said it. Yeah. So, Chuck, if the cognitive behavioral treatment is not working, how about some drugs, man? Yeah, what's the deal with this? Uh, well, there's a uh, protein in our brains called NMDA, N-methyl D-aspirate, right? And it's in the amygdala. And if you inhibit it, so this is a, a double negative. If you inhibit it, you also inhibit fear extinction. Okay. So science is reason. If you promote um, NMDA, 
right? Mm-hmm. Then you will also promote fear extinction. And they're finding that that's actually the case. There's a, a tuberculosis drug, an antibiotic, uh-huh. that promotes the production of the protein NMDA, and they give it to people um, and then give them exposure therapy as well. Right, because the whole deal is they don't want to try and replace it with a drug, but it just speeds up the the classic conditioning experiment. Yeah, and the, the uh, I guess a, a trial with rats has proven this is possible. They condition them to, to fear a sound or a light or something with electric shocks, classical yeah. conditioning, and then said, well, here, we're going to inject you with this tuberculosis antibiotic. And the rats that um, uh, were on the drug learned fear extinction faster than the ones that were, were doing it without the drug. All right? Can we talk about one more experiment that we didn't cover? Yeah. And I, this is neat, but the experiment itself is just sort of hinky to me what? because – you and we talked earlier about the thrill of being afraid. That's why people go to horror movies. That's why they get on roller coasters. Oh yeah, yeah. And people say that it's it can be akin to uh, sexual arousal. And this dude named Arthur Aaron did an experiment, which I thought was a little odd. Okay. He had men walk across uh, a suspension bridge, two different bridges. One, and these were 450 feet long over a 230 foot gully. One bridge was very stable. One bridge was not and very shaky. And he had the men uh, walk across this. And at the other end of the bridge, he had his very attractive female assistant waiting, asked him some uh, some uh, red herring questions that didn't have anything to do with the experiment, and then said, oh, and here's my number if you have any questions. Apparently, three of the men who, uh, of the 33 men, only two, sorry, called the woman afterward who walked across the stable bridge, the guys that walked on the shaky bridge, nine of the 33 called her. Bam. Proven. No. I, know. I, I guess they just were like, I can do anything. What's your number? Or they're like, hey, I'm very turned on because I almost just died. What's your number? What's your number? Or I'm going to call you. So, Chuck, what do you do if you have like, if you don't really want the drugs, you're, you're not um, debilitated, and I should also say the National Institutes of Health say about 19 million people in the United States alone suffer from mental illnesses that involve irrational fear responses. So everything from like a phobia, panic disorder, mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, 19 million people in the U.S. alone. I would have thought more than that. Really? Yeah. Okay. But let's say you're not one of these people where you're not clinically afraid, but you still don't like heights or... You know, you, you can get on a plane, but you are not happy. What are the eight tips? Uh, well, one, Josh, is that it doesn't matter why you're scared. So it's not like to develop a big understanding of your fear helps you overcome it. It actually delays that progress, is what they say. Yeah, as what Prevention Magazine says. Because number two says learn about the thing you fear. Right. I guess not why you're scared, but to learn more about it. Like maybe injecting rationality like this is how often a plane actually goes down or something like that. Yes. Take baby steps. Train yourself to not be afraid. Yeah. Uh, hang around someone who's not afraid of that. Yeah. Like uh, if you're afraid of heights, hang around with me because I'm not afraid of heights. Right. Uh, talk about it because sharing out loud makes things better. Duh. <laughs> uh, play mind games with yourself. Like the, <laughs> And they use the, the classic example of picturing a crowd naked if you're speaking in front of them. I've heard that you're, the, that does not help, and it may actually make things worse. I could see that. And uh, don't look at the big picture. Just look at each little one step at a time and uh, seek help if you have, like, 
really irrational fear, go talk to someone. Seek help indeed. Mm -hmm. And seek uh, this article. You got anything else? No, sir. So seek this article by typing fear, F-E-A-R, not F-E-R-E, into the uh, search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. It's going to bring up this article and some other cool stuff, right? Yes. Um, And since I said that, Chuck, you know what time it is. That's right. You know what the real is. Mm -hmm. It's time for listener mail. Uh, Josh, I'm going to call this Hellos from Kazakhstan. <laughs> yeah, I just read an article in the New Yorker about Kazakhstan and its new capital. Um, I believe it's called like Astana. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Astana. The the president of Kazakhstan like just has sunk billions into creating a new capital in the really? middle of the uh, steps of the country. Good for him. And Kazakhstan is the ninth largest country. In the world by landmass. Really? It also shares the longest border in the world. Uh, it shares it with the Soviet Union. Wow. Go ahead. You're just recalling all this, too. Very impressive. Uh, and I told this guy that I would uh, make fun of his accent and read it as Borat, and he said, I love it. Nice. Wait, so, that was uh, Yakov Smirnov. Yeah, you're right. Clearly. <laughs> and he literally titled it, Hellos from Kazakhstan. <laughs> uh, your podcast is being played in Astana, Kazakhstan. That's the capital. All right, that's where he lives. I discovered your podcast when I once bought an iPod gizmo. <laughs> I started my discovery of American culture when I won scholarship to study my 12th grade in American high school. That was an awesome year for a guy who has never been to McDonald's in his life <laughs> and has never sat in nice single-seat student desks. <laughs> I guess they sit on benches. I there. guess so. Uh, also include the traditional yellow school buses. <laughs> I live with great host family who further show me culture. After graduating high school, I won another scholarship to study at Canadian College. As you have guessed, in four years in Canada, my mentality got synced with Northern American culture. Now I am back in Kazakhstan and got job in IT field. <laughs> I'm going to stop that. Stop that. No, you got to keep going. Oh, no. you got to finish it. I'm writing all this because every day on my way to work, I listen to podcasts, and you guys always bring back good memories of USA and Canada. Awesome. For 50 minutes, I feel as if I'm in USA and Canada. <laughs> Hope this feeling never goes away. You also make me smile and laugh in buses, <laughs> and I look like idiot to other gray faces in bus. Other what? Gray faces. Huh. I guess that just means... Stinky commuters in Kazakhstan. Gotcha. Uh, but the last, I wish everyone here understood English to listen to you guys, so they should start their day with smile. Thanks for great work and share of American culture. Izgi Nietvin, which means regards. Okay. And that is from Gizat. Gizat. And he was thrilled that I would be making fun of his accent. That is awesome. He Thank you, Gizat. Neat. We are glad to uh, keep you entertained. And say hello to Borat for us. Yeah. Who is actually British, you know, John. Okay. All right. He's um, playing Freddie Mercury. Is he really? Mm-hmm. That'll be great. Heck yeah. Wait. Uh, our guy? No, no, no. Not not uh, Gizat. Gizat. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Gizat. We appreciate that. Um, if you are afraid of something weird, we want to hear about it. That includes you too, Gizat. We want to know. Um, send us an email at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?